Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. James sent me notes to Steve, check it out. The Michigan Supreme Court has addressed the Uniform Commercial Code uh, sales article uh, in one of its recent rulings. And they say this ruling is going to upset and, and upend the automotive supplier industry. And it's going to cause all kinds of repercussions. And it is quite interesting. But simply speaking, sales, me selling you something, okay, me selling you something, is governed by Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code, which governs sales, sales of goods. So you're selling goods to somebody, and they're buying the goods, and it's happening in the state of Michigan. It's governed by Article 2, which is 440.2 in the MCLs and, uh, you know, at SEC. And around the nation, it's numbered differently, but the UCC has been adopted for the most part in all 50 states. So one of the interesting things is that if you take contracts law in law school, you talk about the sale of goods with contracts, and you talk about a thing called the the, um, statute of frauds, the statute of frauds. And years ago, years ago, they had a concept, common law, called the statute of frauds. And the statute of frauds uh, was basically a set of rules that had to do with what was the basic bare-bones necessity requirements of a contract for sale. So, so in other words, if I said to you, hey, you want to buy this? And you said, sure. Is that a contract? Um, do you need to have a handshake? Do you need to have a signed document? How specific must the terms of the contract be? And so all of these things have been litigated over the years. And all of that litigation led to somebody going, you know, we need to make this uniform. Let's come up with a uniform commercial code. And that's where the UCC came from, inspiration-wise. So here's what's happening in the state of Michigan now with a Supreme Court ruling from last week in a case called MSSC versus Airboss Flexible Products. I suspect from here on out we'll refer to it as Airboss as the case, right? Uh, So it was decided last week. The company brought an action in the Oakland County Circuit Court against Airboss alleging anticipatory breach of contract and seeking to enforce a purchase order between the parties after Airboss threatened to stop filling orders unless MSSC agreed to a price increase. This is a common situation, but somebody creates a purchase order or purchase agreement and they, and they hand it to the supplier and go, can you fulfill this? And they say, yes, we can. And that can become a contract because we've agreed to the terms in this purchase order. Okay? The question becomes, if the other side says, hey, we don't like the terms anymore. We want out. Can they do that? And so here, because the supplier said, we need more money per item here, or we're not going to fulfill the contract, then the buyer ran to court and said, they are threatening to breach the contract. We want the court to order them to fulfill the contract. The party's purchase order for the products was identified as a blanket order that listed the parts to be supplied, but did not include specific quantities. So it said, here's the part we want, and we want a ton of them, and we want them over this period of time, but it did not specify the exact quantity of the parts. Instead, the purchase order indicated that quantities would be based on the needs 
of a customer of MSSC. And so MSSC was obligated to create and send releases per the terms and conditions, but neither the purchase order nor the terms and conditions obligated MSSC to send any number of firm orders to Airbus, either as a raw number or as a percentage of MSSC's total need. So despite all of the communications going back and forth, there never was something that said, here's how many units we will sell you, and the other side saying, here's how many units we will buy. So MSSC brought this lawsuit, and the trial court granted a preliminary injunction in favor of them, finding that the contract was a requirements contract and was likely, likely enforceable. Airboss moved for summary disposition, arguing that the purchase order failed to satisfy MCL 440.2201 sub 1, which is the statute of frauds of the Uniform Commercial Code. In response, MSSC moved for summary disposition, arguing that the blanket purchase order was a requirements contract that satisfied the statute of frauds. The trial court, James M. Alexander, a judge I've been in front of, granted the motion for summary disposition, concluding that because the purchase order was identified as a blanket order, it contained a quantity term that satisfied the statute of frauds. Airbus appealed, and the Court of Appeals upheld that as well. But the Supreme Court of Michigan said, no, we'll hear that case, and they reversed it. The term blanket order, without more, does not express a quantity term that satisfies 440.2201 sub 1, the statute of frauds of the Uniform Commercial Code. The court overruled a previous case from 1986 and said that the statute of frauds section of the UCC provides that contracts entered into for the sale of goods worth $1,000 or more must be in writing and that a court may only enforce the contract up to the quantity of goods set forth in the writing. Well, there is no quantity listed. Oh, then the court can't enforce it. When a contract fails to include a quantity term, other evidence outside of the contract itself cannot be offered to supply the missing quantity term. A requirements contract is a contract in which a buyer promises to buy and a seller to supply a set amount or percentage of the goods or services that a buyer needs during a specific period, such as all requirements of the buyer. Requirements contracts may be created by a blanket purchase order, which along with the amount or percentage to be purchased and supplied, sets forth the terms governing items such as price, length of contract, warranty, details, indemnification, and termination. However, a quantity term is what is needed to specifically uh, create a requirements contract. Uh, 440.2306 provides, in pertinent part, that a term that measures the quantity by the requirements of the buyer means such actual requirements as may occur in good faith, except that no quantity unreasonably disproportionate to any stated estimate may be tendered or demanded. In contrast, release-by-release contracts are governed by a blanket purchase order that sets the overall contract terms, and the buyer issues subsequent releases that set forth the specific quantity the buyer needs. However, unlike a requirements contract, 
The blanket purchase order does not set forth the share of the buyer's need to be purchased from the supplier. Although the seller is not bound to accept future orders in the same manner, the seller is bound by the terms in the purchase order when future releases are issued and accepted. The key difference between a requirements contract and a release-by-release contract is the level of mutual obligation between the parties and the risk each party bears. A requirements contract assures the seller that the buyer will be a customer for the length of the contract, but the seller cannot reject future orders for the length of the contract. In contrast, a release-by-release contract gives both parties the freedom to allow their contractual obligations to expire in short order by either not issuing or not accepting a new release. In this case, the documents between the parties created a release-by-release contract, not a requirements contract. The documents did not contain a quantity term. Rather, the purchase order only stated that MSSC would issue releases. While the releases contained a firm quantity and MSSC's estimated future needs, those releases only constituted an obligation binding Airbus as to each individual release if Airbus accepted not a promise to fulfill all future orders. So what this basically means right now is there are vendors scrambling out there who have deals with suppliers or manufacturers, and it gets complicated in this day and age. Let's suppose you buy a product built by Chevrolet. You go to a Chevy dealership and you buy yourself a Chevrolet. In the old days, a long, long time ago, there was a factory where Chevrolet made everything, put it together and sold it to you, and there you go, that's a Chevy. Nowadays, there are companies out there that make a lot of the sub-assemblies that go into that car. And they could be things such as transmissions or wiring harnesses or instrument clusters, things of that nature. And so there's companies that provide those things, seats, those things to Chevrolet, and Chevrolet on an assembly line assembles the car. There are companies that provide the individual components and parts to those suppliers, So there could be somebody out there, for instance, making gauges, just making the gauges, right? And they make the gauges and they sell the gauges to a company that makes the instrument cluster assemblies. And so they buy the gauges, they assemble the cluster, and then they sell that to Chevrolet. And so there's a whole bunch of these different relationships in the making of a car. So right now, out there, are all kinds of these relationships governed by these contracts in Michigan. If you ever have the opportunity to drive up I-75 in northern Oakland County, Michigan, you'll go through a corridor of where there's all these big buildings, including a big building owned by Stellantis, which used to be the Chrysler World Headquarters, and not far from that, a Volkswagen building, which is where Volkswagen of North America has their headquarters, I believe, but also all these other buildings of companies with names you don't recognize, but they look to be big companies. Many of them are suppliers to the auto manufacturers. And what they make, I don't know. Uh, I I know people who work at some of these companies, and and they make a whole variety of things. And so what will happen is Chevrolet will decide, okay, in this particular car, we're going to put this particular seat, okay? So they're going to contact a seat manufacturer and go, we're going to need seats for these cars, how many seats are you going to need? Well, we don't know. We, we, we plan on building 100,000 of these things, 
But if things go really, really badly, we might not build that many. If things go really well and this car is a hit, we might actually add a few assembly lines and, and build a quarter of a million this year. So our need for seats could be however many seats we need per car times 100,000, 200,000, 250,000. But they don't want to sign a purchase agreement with somebody and say, we have promised to purchase a quarter of a million seats. Because if the car is not a hit, then they're stuck with all these seats. Likewise, they don't want to say, okay, we're only going to buy 100,000 because they might need more. And so they've always had these agreements in place. And there's often a little bit of bargaining power imbalance here. It depends on how many people want to buy these seats from this company. And it depends also on you know how many uh, different people are out there making the seats. And so you, you encounter this quite often where fights break out because things can be going along perfectly well. Okay, We want to buy your seats. We want to sell you seats. Great. So send over the order. Seats are arriving. Send over the order. Seats are arriving. What often happens is one of two things. The cost of producing the seats goes up for whatever reason. The cost of seats goes up. They want to raise the price. You can't raise the price. We've got this contract in place. It says these, this is the price we're going to pay. That's one thing that often happens. The other one that often happens, someone else comes along and says, how much are they paying you for seats? Oh, really? You know something? If you wanted to sell us seats, if you could do it, we'll pay you more. And we'll buy more seats from you. And so suddenly the contract that this vendor has, they go, oh, it's not a contract. It's more of an understanding or an agreement to negotiate. Well, you've been selling seats and delivering seats, and they've been sending you checks. What's that all about? Oh, well, we have a good working relationship, but there was never really a binding contract there. And so you see this pop up from time to time in business. And so I suspect what happened here was one of those two things. That is that there was a company getting these parts sent over and they were doing fine. And then either the price of those parts went up or somebody else came along and said, we'll pay you more for those. And next thing you know, they're like, oh, okay, we we can't take care of both parties on this. Let's take care of them. I don't know which of those two it was. Maybe there's a third option. I don't know. But going forward, if you're in the industry, and this is something that you should be aware of, your contract has got to be quite specific. Basically, you need to be aware of whether your company is using a release-by-release contract or a requirements contract. And keep in mind that one of them does require you to actually specify a quantity in the contract or the contract is not enforceable. And by the way, there have been situations before where parties have agreed to cooperate and they've cooperated with no written contract between them. That can be done also. It's just not very common in business, and it's a dangerous game to play because as soon as somebody has an incentive to break the contract, they'll try. They'll try. So this is the case that went to the Michigan Supreme Court. Michigan Supreme Court says, you know something, you might want to put the quantities in your contract if you can. So MSSC Inc. versus Airboss Flexible Products. James sent it. Thanks a lot. Questions or comments, put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. It's always something.